Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Welcome to the second EU VC LP roundtable. We've assembled a panel of LPs to discuss the current turbulent climate and give some insight into how they advise their VCs to act and react. Please welcome Marcus, founding partner of AlphaQ, João, investment director at August, and an old friend of the EUVC, JD from Pacenotes. We hope you'll enjoy this roundtable and invite you to DM us with topics you'd like us to bring for future LP roundtables. We are here to serve you. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review, and following us on LinkedIn. We've just launched our first partner podcast, The Next Gen VC, which is hosted by Audrey and Ved. The podcast is a from Gen Z to Gen Z and all about how to break into VC. So give it a listen. And if you don't think it's for you, share it with someone else. Guys, welcome to the show. It is so great having you here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having us. Before we jump into this, I just want to take the time for us to introduce ourselves almost to each other, but not to the audience, because we've brought together a group of LPs here that don't yet know each other. So in that sense, we're going to have a fun round of hellos saying who we are. And I hope that you guys will then say if you think the other parties sound like they're cool or if they sound like they're a bunch of ludicrous idiots. <laughs> so welcome, guys. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Hi. So I'm Marcus from AQVC. We are a fund of VC funds and we're run by entrepreneurs and fund managers and also managers who've been running fund of funds for VCs, which is a little bit more unique, structured as a stock company. So our ambition is really to make venture capital as an asset class more accessible and also enhance liquidity because we see that these are two key challenges for especially broad audiences to step into venture capital. And it's such an important asset class for thriving societies, for enhancing technology and for making our lives better. And we think it should be way more accessible and it's important to grow it and really work on shaping the asset class of itself. Yeah, we're kind of stepping up to democratize venture capital. We are investing into established funds, but we especially love emerging funds of basically any size with a cutting edge, unique access to deal flow, very deep sector knowledge and networks. And yeah, GPs who, who love what they do, who are passionate to develop their portfolio companies. And yeah, great to be on, on this podcast with all of you. Thanks, Marcus. Now, sure, we'll call on you because I think every one of our listeners know JD by now. So <laughs> we've had him on for a couple of times. So sure, take the floor. Thanks, Andreas. Yeah, my name is, is João. I'm from Portugal. So I'm the, the second Portuguese of the group here. And I'm part of August. August is a platform to invest in private equity set up by four entrepreneurial families, well, more than a decade ago already. And we invest across most corners of the private market space. Since last year, we've started a venture capital strategy and very much like Marcus was mentioning, we're part of this you know, global trend of democratization of private markets. But more specifically on venture, I think what we focus on, and I realize it's quite similar to what Marcus said, is mostly emerging managers that have some experience either as operators or investors and that have this willingness to challenge the markets 
you know, main brands with the novel approach, passionate about their craft, passionate about their LPs as well. That's important. But generally speaking, more on the emerging side of things. JD, feel free to just add to this and then be completely frank about you loving the big guys. <laughs> yes, thanks. Yeah, so my name is JD. I'm the founding partner of Pace Notes. As you just mentioned, right, we have a bit different strategy. We're a hybrid fund that's focused on creating uh, top quarter returns with a strong risk reward attached to it. That, that's what we do. So we tend to look for funds that have very good deal flow coverage, as we call it, meaning you know that in their stage and in their expertise in geo, they are seeing what's happening in the market almost up to 100%. That's what we look for. And then attached to that is preferably funds that have almost an optimum size and setup. And the setup just meaning, you know, their team, and then again, their geo, but also their investment strategy. So as long as those are aligned, then it works for us. And our strategy is being quite aggressive in co-investments. And yes, Andreas, if you look at the funds that we work with and in the past and that we now work with, it tends to be the uh, not the emerging managers. It could be somebody that's launching a new funds that's, you know, very well embedded in the ecosystem. That also works for us. But it tends to be the funds that have more experience because they have found this optimum size and setup. And that's what we focus on. And also for our co-investment strategy, that works best. Welcome to the three of you. Super nice to have you. Some new faces, some old faces, both for myself, but also for the audience. So let's jump right into it. And I think we couldn't do this roundtable without addressing kind of the elephant in the VC room, so to speak. Very quickly after, you know, I don't know, start just go on your LinkedIn and whatever, and you start seeing all of these, you know, crazy uh, memes and gifs with doomsday rhetoric and, you know, the press talking about, you know, this burst and the market and how the future is so kind of stark <laughs> or whatever. The fact of the matter is that it hasn't happened yet, but there's a lot of conversation about it. And as LPs, I think it's super interesting to kick things off with a round of what do you see GPs stressing about right now? And how do you advise them or how do you think at it, at least at this stage? And JD, that's okay. Let's start with you. Sure. Yeah. I think what I see that experience counts, right? So I think many of the, the GPs that we work with have been through various cycles and have seen, I think, well, nobody can predict the market, but I've seen, I think many of the GPs have seen the potential of corrections basically happening in the future, right? So we've seen, that I think most of the Managers have gone to market and raised earlier and a little bit bigger funds. And also for their portfolio companies, you know, have been focusing more on runway and, you know, extension and, and those sort of things. And hiring is, is becoming more critical. I think many of them already early this year started to work on that and they've been well prepared. It's pacing, right? So it will probably slow down going forward. Everything will slow down a little bit depending on the stage where you are in the market. But I think it's an adjustment on both sides. So especially, as I said, you know, the experienced managers, they have been adjusting already since maybe end of last year or beginning this year. I think everybody like yourself is the same, right? So everybody in this market is expecting a correction. Maybe, um, you know, it's been some really high market for, for a long time. That's what I'm seeing. So it's almost the same as if you recall, you know, the first, let's say, eight weeks of when COVID really hit, you've seen the same dynamics, right? So it took a little bit longer for term sheets and valuations and da-da-da. And that's what, what we are seeing now as well. But... In general, I think the managers are have been preparing as well. Marcus, I have to uh, throw in a curveball for you because you're one of these new young bucks in this space. <laughs> so I'm very curious to hear your thoughts around it when you hear all of this kind of article yeah. rhetoric around the market today. What do the GPs complain about? I think the windows for an exit have just certainly closed in a way, right? I mean, the whole IPO topic is off and dry at the moment. And also the ones who've done IPOs and still have shares in their portfolio are suffering from the corrections. 
But we say, stay patient. There has always been cycles, right? They're there to overcome part of the game. And when you go into action from complaining, what can we do? Yeah. And what's also our advice? First and foremost, stay close to the portfolio companies. Yeah. They really need help now because the funding markets are unpredictable. So it's all about cash is king. So we highly advise to help the managers control their costs. And that will certainly be for many investors a focus in the future. How efficient is the capital being used in a downwards market cycle? It becomes more important. Equally, keep dry powder to help your company and portfolios from the inside and not be dependent on an external round to happen, right? And to just bridge the phase that we're in where we all don't know how long it lasts and we hope it doesn't last for long. And at the same time, there's opportunity when prices are corrected. I think it is generally wise when it's unpredictable to stay more in the early space and try to purchase shares at a reasonable price and then let them mature and, and wait for the cycles to go up and find the right windows. That's after all what we try to advise. And it's coming from a very entrepreneurial perspective where as an entrepreneur, uh, we've been through those cycles ourselves. And, and that's where we were helped by best when our um, investors had dry powder to support us and, and help us, you know, just to go through the cycle smoothly. João, my fellow Portuguese, you have the unfortunate <laughs> task of being the last one to reply. <laughs> so at least I love it when my name is, is pronounced correctly. There yeah. you go. I'll do that all day long. It makes me worry. feel better. <laughs> Because we sort of focus on experienced investor operators, they, they might have started something more emerging, but they've seen it all, right? They've seen the cycles. And also because we focus on, on the very early stages of investment, we haven't seen very stressed GPs so far. Yes, for their older vintages, obviously you're seeing substantial haircuts. And as Marcus was mentioning, liquidity window has been you know, slammed shut for a few months, maybe years. I mean, apart from that, I think early stage markets are still holding up pretty well. And, and when you talk to an experienced GP and you're an experienced LP yourself, you know, just like Marcus and JD were mentioning, that these cycles will come and will eventually go. But if I now focus on European VC a little bit more, since it's the topic of or, or the subject of this podcast, all the ingredients to make something beautiful out of European VC are still there in terms of talent, in terms of access to global markets. So generally speaking, I think GPs understand it's tough for market to navigate in, but they're relatively calm. What we're starting to cover, though, with them and things we're starting to pay attention are around, you know, fund sizing and fundraising cycles. And I think, again, JD and Marcus covered these points, but I think GPs also need to understand and think about the optimal sizing and what the current market circumstances mean for, you know, that optimal sizing and for the, the way you think about fund sizing, because fund sizing obviously entails quite a lot of consequences. Uh, you have to invest faster if you have a bigger fund. You get a lot more fees. And then, you know, the balance between fees and carried interest gets a bit shaky. Obviously, fundraising cycle is the, the corollary there. The default in early stage markets has been two, two and a half years deployment period. I think that's a bit coming under pressure. And we're, we're probably seeing, mar uh, you know, funds coming back with a two and a half, three year cycle in mind. So, you know, these things we're paying attention because they are sort of mean reversion elements, right? The market has been very hot for a few years now. It is starting to revert a little bit back to the mean. And we want to see that, you know, in the conditions 
that these GPs come to the market with. I'd love to stay on that topic a bit. And we also need to get back to the liquidity window because I think that's a that's a very interesting conversation. But on fund sizes and deployment speed, what about the existing funds that you've invested in that are now already out there deploying something where they had promised or at least stated that we're going to deploy in, in two, two and a half years? And now they might be seeing, okay, I don't want to go out now with my next fund. So I'd actually prefer prolonging that to three, three and a half or something like that. Do you have that type of conversation with GPs now about what do you think about doing? Actually, quite the opposite. I mean, first, I think early stage deal flow is as good as ever. Quality of founders, quality of ideas, and maybe they're still you know, woken up yet from their dreams, but it seems from the discussions we have with GPs that their deal flow is as good as as strong as ever. So they're sticking to their, you know, two and a half and even sometimes, you know, closer to two year fundraising cycles and deployment cycles, which is, to be honest, not easy for LPs, especially when you're raising funds yourselves, right? But regardless of that, you need to adapt your fundraising cycle all the time. The second point I wanted to make is that actually we also hear the narrative that If you manage to raise and close a fund in a few weeks or months in these current market circumstances, it's also a display of strength towards founders. And, you know, it's a very competitive market out there. So if you show up strength to founders, they are probably more likely to take your money than your competitor that is sort of struggling with fundraising cycles, slowing down a little bit, not staying true to their sort of motto. So, yeah, that's that's what we're seeing. I think that's always interesting uh, to reflect on what you just said, that with GPs fundraising very, very quickly, because yes, some do that. And here we're with a team of fund of funds, and typically fund of funds are the ones that are best networked and with access to the best funds. But fact of the matter is that many, many, many of the GPs that we have listening in on this podcast are not used to that, right? So they're thinking, okay, now I'm raising for 12 months, for 18 months, for 24 months, and I sure as hell are not going to go out fundraise <laughs> in 12 months again because I went through all my cash reserves there quickly. So in that sense, it's a very different perspective for you guys when you're investing primarily in the ones that go quickly compared to the ones that are racing for a long time and need to stay in the game. But I think it's also an effect of how disciplined you've been as a manager, right? So some of these GPs they have been really super disciplined in their strategy. They maybe increase their size a little bit to offset for valuations, uh, but not much change. And they have this sort of cadence, you know, and they it's a predictable one. And if you have been doing that, then probably your positioning nowadays is also still quite strong in, in order to raise, right? So you're still doing the same thing you've been doing for a long time. And it hasn't changed much. And, you know, for example, in fintech, it's not like the SME market is becoming that much smaller or, or something like that, if you see what I mean, right? So that's still there. So if you're good at that, let's say seed or series A, and that's your thing, and you always raise a 60 million fund for a long, yeah, then you still probably have a good appetite from LPs as well. Yeah, and I think it's, after all, it's, it's all about adapting your strategies and, and spinning the story to adapt to the market cycles. I mean, the, the money's there, right? And it needs to find its targets and it's being shifted from certain asset classes. And I think when you are able to describe the opportunities that also arise in these cycles, there's always a market for that. It's just about keeping up the hard work. So I, I wouldn't want to say anyone should get demotivated from the cycle. There's opportunity. That's the beauty of every crisis. For those who work hard and adapt, there's opportunity. 
we've been talking about this from a third-party perspective here, right? So DGPs. But what's particularly interesting about this roundtable is that all of you are also GPs. <laughs> yeah. Just have a, raising your own funds and running your own funds. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to ask exactly the same question or set of questions, but now from you know a first-person perspective, okay, what does this inform you as a fund manager, in this case a fund fund manager, in the way you operate, whether that's fundraising or deploying? And take whoever feels excited about this question can take it first. But I was going to jump on Andreas' comment about, you know, emerging GPs taking long to fundraise. You know, fund of funds are in the same position, right? And that's your point. We're GPs ourselves and we know how hard it is to fundraise, especially when the conditions are not perfect and they are never and definitely not nowadays. So yes, LPs, especially the less experienced ones, the ones that we, I think, Marcus, JD and myself, want to attract obviously the ones that are haven't been yet touched by the beauty of VC. So these react to market circumstances differently. And that means that you might take a little bit more time to convince them. But as long as you stay close and true to your values and to the market potential, and you continue educating LPs about what it takes to build you know, consistent private market allocations, what it takes to build consistent VC portfolios. Last but not least, the fact that it's probably the best time in a decade to be investing in VCs precisely because you know, valuations will come down, there will be dislocations in the market. Yes, it will take a bit of time to convince people about those things, but stay true to what you believe in. Go to market potentially with a slightly smaller fund than you expected, but prove your worth, create your track record, and things will work out fine for the best of you. And building on top of that, I really draw like that you say educate. Yeah, From our perspective, after all, as GPs, we serve our LPs. Yeah, we are, Our job is to manage their money with you know, the best risk and return profile that we can establish. And that needs explanation and strategies and thoughts. And one reason we, for instance, structured as an evergreen was that we keep a certain flexibility on adapting to those market cycles because we want to not dogmatically run through a once true and logical strategy, but we want to have also in and for the sake of our investors and our duty to serve them, be able to adapt. Yeah, and, and that needs dialogue, that needs explanation. So currently we're working on a lot of materials where we explain the current situation, where we show you know, different routes of strategies that you can go to, after all, create that comfort and alignment to do the right things at the right time. Yeah? That's what it's about, I think. That's actually an interesting uh, point that we could maybe dive a bit into, which is raising from LPs today. What is best practice in terms of describing what's happening, right? Because most LPs will only have noticed that the uh, tech pages of their uh, Financial Times is describing Kleiner falling down with 30% or so in valuation. And then you're the next guy up saying, I'm going to invest in the next Kleiner. Mm-hmm. How do you spin that story well with LPs? One important thing is to also distinguish a little bit in public and private markets yeah, and the dynamics there. So you can really differentiate in speculation and investing. There's a big difference between both of them. And public markets by systematic and engineering have a high speculative character. And this is what leads to those volatilities in markets because people speculate. And I think many of the corrections that we're seeing comes from a speculative character in those markets. In private markets, it's a little bit different. There's the same... Uh, you know, human behavior that we all dream to, you know, not work a lot and make a shitload of money. But when it comes to true investing, 
it is really about finding those targets where the money is working towards value creation. And I think that matters now. And that's what investors are currently looking for. And that's what we try to explain in the current situation, that whenever you put a dollar into a setup company target where the dollar is working to create value versus being part of a speculative systematic, you probably on the long run are doing the right things. That's what we try to explain in the current circumstances. And obviously, there's also such a different persona and market segmentation towards our LPs that they are all very different. And that makes it a little bit difficult <laughs> to say this is the one truth that works for everyone because they're all different. It's not all bad, right? If you're vintage chart this year and maybe the coming years, let's say up to 23 or 24, historically, usually it's not a bad thing, right? So it's also the other side of the, the story that, you know, it has a little bit of a ripple effect, you know, in growth stage and early stage as well, of course, on the long term. But then still, as you just mentioned, it's not all bad for these vintage years that are coming, I think. As an investor into VC funds, do you guys see this whole market situation with different lenses depending on the sectors? And just to give one very simple example, consumer-focused strategy versus a much more IP-driven strategy because that actually affects the liquidity uh, possibilities of that portfolio, right? So more public market-driven versus trade sell M&A-driven. Is that something that is part of your thought process these days? It's always part of the thought process because we develop... And I think I speak for, for Marcus and JD. We develop programs and commitments that are sufficiently diversified to smooth these risks away, right? Consumer might not be, you know, the flavor of the market this year, but might be next year. I don't know, France might not be in a very good place this year, might be next year. There are so many risks that you de described that you can diversify away by using diversification to your advantage that it makes sense for most LPs and most investors to go through funds of funds initially, or at least think very hardly about how to create a diversified, consistent, robust, perennial private markets program. That diversified, robust program will smooth out these risks that you've described. So we think about them, and at the same time, we don't think about them, at least you know, from our perspective. Yeah, I was just about to mention that, yeah. It's sort of inherent, right? So, yeah. But I mean, building on top of that, I think fund of fund by architecture is designed to, you know, work with portfolio theory. This is the job, yeah, to balance out those things, especially when it's actively managed. But at the same time, practically, it is in a way also an opportunity-driven game. And sometimes you're fascinated by a fund that is not in line with all of these thoughts, but it's still the right decision to make, yeah. I love how you spin my question to uh, talk about the main motivation for LPs to invest in fund of funds. Andreas, over to you. What I wanted to dive a bit into was the liquidity question and how you advise managers because as a fund of fund, you guys think and breathe VC all the time. And that means that you aren't exposed to uh, much of the bad side <laughs> and the fear from the market because you know that this is the game. But many VCs have LPs that don't have that sophistication level. And as such, they're probably also being pressured to say, guys, you told us that you'd exit this portfolio in 2022, 2023, and now you're, it doesn't look like that's happening. And then they pressure them to liquidate, right? How do you talk to GPs about how to manage that stakeholder relation to other LPs that are pressing 
to get the portfolio liquidity. <laughs> Leave them alone. <laughs> yeah. Like get your hands off. <laughs> I think internally we work with like what we call a venture capital maturity model, right? So we try to help our LPs rate themselves into kind of an experience scale. And the less experienced they are, the more we advise them to allocate into a fund of fund because of the trust that they can give that this is managed, balanced, and from people who understand them and their fears and be the buffer to the GPs of the VC funds. And the more and experience and maturity, the more we advise to do direct investments into then rather established funds, yeah, and then maybe the emerging funds and then the direct investments of first-time entrepreneurs who are amazing and charismatic and have a great vision but are doing this for the first time and might be overwhelmed, very overwhelmed with questions like that. So I think that's probably what is the right path to just, you know, learn and, and get better. And at the same time, I think I'm also speaking for everyone in the call, we're kind of the buffer for that, yeah. We want to be those value-add rate LPs to the VCGPs who understand them and who can help them in the situations and be, you know, partner in crime versus someone who's getting on your nerves. Yeah, it's exactly that. I think, I mean, gradually the market will move towards a more established and more experienced LP pool, and it will be composed partially at least by folks like us who act as a buffer to less experienced, less resourced LPs and providing them access, education, knowledge, and answers to their questions on a day-to-day -day basis. But again, back to your initial point, Andreas, I think, I mean, you have to educate LPs about cycles and certainly about the fact that it's not in anyone's interest to sell or fire sell at the moment, especially in your example, describing companies that have been trying to find a liquidity window for a few years. If they haven't succeeded yet, they will not succeed in 2022 in these current market circumstances. That being said, I think market and liquidity of the market will catch up with us, hopefully, in that it will provide liquidity windows that resemble the public markets much more, I would say. Maybe someday we'll have secondary private markets that look like selling an Apple share through your financial broker. It might take the liquidity premium away to a certain extent if you follow you know, financial theory, but it will ease that liquidity pain, I think, massively. This is just a thought that I had. I'm curious to hear your, your thinking around secondaries and what will happen over the next year and what you're planning to do yourself in that space. By design, from a financial engineering perspective, I mentioned in the intro, we're a stock company. That has a cause, right? We wanted to make venture capital semi-liquid and, you know, mid to long term, once we list really as liquid as possible. And then it is really up to our LPs to decide if they want liquidity. Well, yeah, go for it, you know, sell off your stock. And you need to make that decision if you want to, you know, get that discount in or not, depending on the market cycle and your own perception. That being said, we believe the asset class venture capital will get more and more liquid by financial engineering and design and the markets that are created around it. And equally, from our own perspective, the secondary market is a very interesting one, right? There's huge opportunity in purchasing stakes from existing LPs and VC funds in these cycles because there are some of them who are nervous, who sometimes also have pressure. And that typically is a good buyer market when you can understand the underlying portfolios, which is tough. It's a complex strategy. So you need team, you need resources for it. You need expertise. But if you have that as a fund of fund, you can also contribute actively to providing that liquidity and obviously make a great margin or return on it. 
you know, the market will be good for secondaries, right? There will be more secondary opportunities as different LPs will be rebalancing their portfolios, maybe those who have large exposure to public markets, specifically tech, of course. And also for us, I mean, we work with a, you know, quite a broad range of LPs where there's always a cycle on their side as well, right? So there's, of course, as we say, as we want to be ourselves and probably everybody in this call and this podcast is, you know, you want to be a sort of a life cycle partner to your GPs, but there's also LPs that have this. And they may become more under pressure, which brings interesting opportunities, I'd say, on the secondary part. And specifically, if you're in the space, that's just been mentioned, you need a team, you need the expertise, but it's, it's such a network-driven space and market that it's, you know, you probably already have a good understanding of, of what sort of secondary opportunities there will be and, and what sort of the pricing should be, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an interesting one. And I think also that it's, it's also one that's been mentioned probably throughout 2020, 2021, lots of times that people are expecting this to happen. I mean, on our side, we're definitely looking forward to helping our LPs be more liquid, not through, you know, stock market listing necessarily, but providing some sort of marketplace system like some of our well-known uh, competitors have. One point that I wanted to make also, maybe for the GPs that are listening and LPs as well, is that there's also a need to educate your LPs to sort of the beauty of the liquidity. Because illiquidity prevents you from selling at the wrong time and buying at the wrong time, like most people do on the public market side, right? <laughs> so if you stick to the, you know, 10 plus two year illiquidity window that most funds display, you are also protecting yourself from mistakes. So yes, sometimes you need liquidity, but if you need liquidity, that's because you've designed your program the wrong way, right? private markets should not be liquid. No, I think historically, if you look at some of the uh, GPs that, well, basically provided liquidity, it's been an expensive one, right? Yeah, so right. They, they always leave money on the table, right? But in hindsight, <laughs> it's, sometimes it's super expensive. So yeah, I think that's a learning for the most, some managers go through this curve, right? So they learn that, try to be a little bit more patient. I love what you guys are saying in the sense that after all, the core advice is don't panic, yeah? Stay patient, otherwise you will leave money on the table. And the panic yeah, that especially public markets have inherent, right? Valuations dropping 30, 40% in, in, in a few weeks is causing people to react often in a bad way for them. Yeah? Yesterday, I was at dinner with one of the executives of a very large German bank, and he said, the beauty of private markets for also a broader investor base, a very unexperienced investor base, is that they cannot daily check the market cap of their investment because it keeps them at peace and rational yeah, versus overreacting fast. And that's actually something where we need to, I think in the venture space and our job as fund of funds, protect especially the inexperienced LPs that have this inherent behavior and rather advise them to stay calm and obviously serve them with liquidity. For me, it's also a duty, but only when they must and hopefully at the lowest discount possible. Yeah? That's our job as well as a fund of funds. I feel like we can engage in a highly philosophical conversation about the need to protect investors. Let's not go that let's not go that route. There's very different worldviews. But it's extremely interesting. One thing I wanted to ask and shifting topic now even though it is related. You know, what I personally have seen in less developed markets from a GP founder relationship or VC founder relationship is you know as least experienced the market is or least mature let's put it like that the geography is the more predatory behavior you're used to seeing 
We're also used to seeing that when, you know, market conditions are less favorable, so there's less competition. Is this something we are already seeing on the LP side? Is this something that you guys yourselves are witnessing? Is it something we should expect seeing? What is your uh, expectation there for the market in Europe? I think I know what you mean. As I already mentioned, you know, the early days of when COVID hit, for example, you've yeah. seen a little bit of the, the pacing behavior. But I haven't seen any of the stuff that you just mentioned, but have heard and have seen, of course, LPs becoming less opportunistic, right? So, of course, also for our strategy, but we work with an LP base that's really interested in co-investing because it's a large part of our strategy. So yeah. they tend to follow that strategy. But in general, I would say that in the market, it's the slowing down and the becoming less opportunistic, maybe less open to new opportunities that's changing. I haven't seen... This sort of behavior you mentioned yet in the market, but uh, yeah. I'm curious to hear how you're seeing other LPs reacting, not necessarily in terms of the terms yet, because that is probably the latest point where it will show, but in just in terms of, you know, you guys are all talking to the equivalents of the AIF in the different countries, Carvet in Germany. Uh, what are you hearing from their side? What's the take of these big institutions on what's happening? I mean, yesterday were the German Startup Awards. State Secretary Jörg Kukisi was speaking, who was mainly involved in the 10 billion program we, we set up here in Germany for startup and private market investments. And after all, I think what's fundamental is that politicians understand in Germany, we have created 400,000 jobs in the startup industry, that this is really important as a backbone for innovation, growth, wealth creation. So from our perspective, at AQVC, we see that politicians are having a reasonable and supportive direction towards our industry and actually think it must be further supported. And I don't see panic on the given market cycle at the moment at all. It's, it's a much more deep foundational strategy to support what we are doing here in this round as fund of funds, but also the GPs of VCs. You know, there are different levels of terms, right? The terms between the founder and VC... I mean, definitely sort of the predatory behaviors in less experienced markets are slowly disappearing because obviously the market is maturing and good funds that don't play these predatory games are starting to invest across all geographies of Europe. I mean, you know, from the Portugal situation, even here in Belgium, where I am, a lot of companies are being funded by the best London funds, etc. So... I think that is slowly disappearing. And at the same time, we're also slowly shifting from a founder's market to a VC's market. Anyway, speaking as an LP, I mean, terms should absolutely follow suit, right? Not in a predatory way, but there needs to be a rebalancing of terms, valuation, and other terms, of course, towards the more investor-friendly situation. Otherwise, what would we pay VC's fees for, right? If it isn't for their judgment and, and the way that they can negotiate good terms for their LPs, but balanced terms towards their founders. And then there's the level of the economics between funds, so GPs and their LPs. And there also needs to be a, a sort of rebalancing, I believe, and balance between risk and reward. That's a very personal perspective, I guess. But definitely the governmental agencies, institutional LPs, long-term families, long-term asset pools are all committed to the space, but they should also speak up when they see terms that are not necessarily balanced. It's not so much the case in Europe, but sometimes I see situations where, you know, I don't understand where the management fees or the carried interest will go to, or the other way around. I, I understand it very well. 
yeah, that's the kind of the balancing game that I think is also happening a little bit, but depends on who you're talking to. Honestly, again, the more established brand names, the very, very strong ones are having a, an easier time getting away with it, I guess. And I think balance is the right word. There's always in markets and in system thinking, there's always thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and, and it's about this game. And with maturity, typically, the people remember the past and adapt and we see is still such a small, young asset class. It will take some more cycles to have these complete markets that should be healthy. When also a governmental perspective, you inject too much capital into a market, can also be unhealthy, right? Destabilize the natural, the invisible hand. Yeah. We are coming up on our time, so uh, it's time that we go to the quickfire round. We will try and make it somewhat quick, but we are three here, and we'll also push you into uh, making this a take-a-stance round, which I think does warrant that you're allowed to explain a bit why you either believe that it's true or false. Are you ready for this? Ready. <laughs> ready. Good. First statement is direct investments into management companies, i.e. GP stakes, is a malpractice that should stop. And Sean, feel free to start. Yeah, I know it's more in the buyout markets predominantly. I think it's a great financial product for LPs and GPs alike. I'm not so familiar with sort of the predatory behaviors in the VC market. So I'm curious to hear from JD and Marcus on that front. So my take is that it's quite an interesting product if it's balanced. Yeah, I see it happen quite a lot, actually. I think it's not a bad thing to me. I mean, uh, it's a way to get started. As you know, it can be tough for you guys now, for emerging managers to get started. It all depends on the economics of the deal, right? So if it gets you going, and then there's some really, really great funds out there that started in this way. So it's, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, agree. It's not a bad thing. It should be transparent. That's, I think, important. And we did it ourselves. We have great investors in our management entity, unicorn founders, very experienced people. And it's, it's a huge help. And I think it accelerates the markets. It accelerates creativity. It gives resources to ideas to enhance and invest also as a management entity to better serve both sides, LPs, uh, GPs. Next statement is the 2% GP commit standard is doing more harm than good by keeping people out of the industry that could have actually been good stewards of capital. There's many ways to get into venture, right? And start your own firm. It could be deeper deal. There's other ways, especially nowadays. There's many ways for getting it done. I think maybe the, the 2% itself is a little bit, it's just a number. And I think most of the GPs that are starting out have way more in it than, than just this 2% commit, right? Uh, so it's already all in. If it's about alignment, then I think you can discuss what sort of a number it should be. And on the other hand, I think any good manager would probably try to maximize on his own portfolio. I think we're all probably sort of overcommitted to our own thing here. So, And I think that's probably the same for most GPs. Yeah, it's really about alignment again, right? Uh, you might argue that 2% is actually too low for more established brands because there are so many ways to fund a GP commit nowadays. So that's also something we pay attention to. But again, if it's really impossible to fund that GP commitment, then you need to find ways to convince your investors that you're fully aligned with them. It should be relatively easy when you're starting out. But I think alignment is absolutely non-negotiable. I have to follow up on this one because we have so many GPs that are struggling to make that 2% commit. And for them, it would be a help <laughs> to have a strong signal from an LP that now nah, we don't need that. And you guys are here saying that as an emerging manager, you are for sure all in whether you put that 2% down or not. Do you ever then actually practice what you preach and then say, you don't have to put 0.5%, whatever. And we will explain to all the other LPs why we believe that this is fair. 
Yeah, for us, it's, I think it's difficult because we work, as I said, with most of the experienced managers and there it could be also 20% or higher, right? So because, as I said, many people try to back their own company. So we see different numbers as well as just the 2%, for example. If I were to be in that position, I think there's also other ways, as has uh, just been mentioned, to finance the 2%. But if you're starting out as an emerging manager, I can imagine that you work with high net worth or some ex-founders or family offices. And within that sort of LP base, I'd say it would be possible to make a clear narrative that probably this emerging manager is already, as I said, flat out all in on this one venture as they used the are. So that should count for something, right? Yeah, again, I never encountered the, the particular case, but if you're taking two in 20, 2% is one year of fees, right? Yes, of course, it's a big investment personally as a GP, but it can be digested, I guess. If it can't, then definitely, by all means, if there is a couple of experienced LPs around the table that can convince the less experienced ones that, you know, the guy or, or girl is putting everything in it, it should be fine. But again, my point is there's ways to fund it, I think. Equally, I think the underlying problem is way more complex than answering with this simple 2%. Yeah. What do we want to see? We want to see very strong commitment. We don't want to see you run off and let the money work alone because it is a people's business. And to create returns and alpha, and uh, you need to actively manage your portfolio and you need to help the founders. And uh, that commitment is what it's about. And there's many ways to figure out if a GP is committed to what he's doing or not. It's not just those 2%. We don't have a hard term on this. Obviously, money is a motivation and it changes behavior and maybe at a certain point helps the person to get back on the right track and to his duties, but there's so much more behind it. And it's really about also looking at the people and how they structure their life around their passion and profession. It's, a, in our case, a flexible thing. It's, yeah, it's a very good point. Final statement. Host first close investors should pay a premium on fees. Yeah, I think fairness is the term here. So if people take an earlier risk, they should be somehow rewarded. That's what we want to solve, right? And it's uh, an operational challenge, I think. How do you price those things fairly? Being an evergreen fund, this is actually a very interesting topic for us as well, right? Because we have rolling closings and we need to kind of make this fair. So we try to just give investment slots and periods and then come up with a clear next price that you can take or leave. And that's the way we try to solve it. In general, I am for it for fairness reasons and the pure a systematic of yeah, uh, earlier money in is, is early at risk and, and the later you just have more knowledge and risk changes. Yeah. You're wording it, Andreas, as a premium, right? But it's actually a discount. <laughs> that's the way you can think about it, right? And again, yeah, I think fairness is a, something that suits this sort of dynamic going on in the, around first close and then post close. I mean, for the emerging GPs listening, and we are an emerging GP, we're all, I guess, emerging GPs here, but investing in, in other emerging GPs sometimes. I think that you have to find the balance between rewarding your first close investors or penalizing the late close investors through equalization fees. But at the same time, if they're too high, I mean, people also feel more comfortable when they see what's actually in sort of the blind pool, right? Either funds or co-investments or direct investment. So you risk shooting yourself in the foot, not having the first closes because they never come and not having the, the final closes because... It's too expensive. Still, I think, you know, Uriber plus two or four or whatever the market rate is nowadays is probably on the low side if you're doing 25% returns. 
I love this conversation. It's super interesting. I think it's interesting <laughs> what JD said about it's all about the way you put it at, <laughs> at some point. It's, it's also about weeding out those LPs that we all know that some LPs are just interested in, in having a lot of conversations and never investing. <laughs> it's also a good tool for that. Guys, thank you very much for your time. It was good fun. We love doing these roundtables. We hope to see you around. Hopefully we can all stay in touch. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. We can keep rocking, everyone. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. We've just launched our first partner podcast, The Next Gen VC, which is hosted by Audrey and Ved. The podcast is a from Gen Z to Gen Z and all about how to break into VC. So give it a listen. And if you don't think it's for you, share it with someone else.